cliffcentral.com. Welcome to the Renegade Report, which is the uh, top show oh, on Cliff Central. Say that again. The top show. Number one, huh? The, the number one show. Unfortunately, George Soros is very upset. Daily Maverick funded show. Uh, I'm just uh, unable to to keep up with the show that has zero funding. Uh, how are you, Ramon? I'm good. I'm good. I'm two hours asleep, so I'm a bit fucked, but I'll survive. Um, so yeah, number one show. For reasons I don't know, um, what have we done recently that merits that? <laughs> no, but I, I don't I'll know. take it. Uh, yeah, we'll we'll definitely take it. Um, so, from number one to uh, bottom of the the rungs, let's talk about Parliament quickly. Right. So there's an MMA fight that happened, right? And then a speech <laughs> ensued, and now apparently this is a great disaster. I don't know why, because firstly, if politicians fight, it's actually good for democracy. And second of all, you need the ratings, man. You need a brand. And Parliament's brand should be rivaling the UFC or, I don't know. You aren't against the violence. I, w- I want blood on the seats. Did Parliament. you see Jacob? Um, not Jacob. Uh, Julius Malema uh, did have his nuts like oh, really, sure. really in, quite, in, quite in heavily Ukraine, grabbed. They, they hit each other with fire hydrants. I'm not fire extinguishers, not hydrants, and chairs and stuff like that, and tear gas. And how does that improve uh, the constitutional democracy? I don't care. It's fun. <laughs> there you go. There's our there's our anarchist coming out. And um, we had uh, Jacob lecturing uh, everyone on criminal law today. That was exciting as well. I didn't see that. What did you say? Uh, I just saw some comments on Twitter, but basically he was commenting on on the law and uh, on the law and how it works with regards to our criminal justice so he, system. He was just spreading fake but, news. But it's it, it's quite interesting to have, uh, you know, essentially a, a, a criminal in waiting, uh, telling everyone about how the law should work. But uh, should we get on to all the whole? Well, I guess wants to talk before he's even been introduced. Jeez, but let's let's give him his mic. In, why don't you? I felt I was missing a, a cue there. Apologies about that. Yeah. <laughs> Hi, everybody. <laughs> right, Ramon, do you want to you want to introduce our guest? Uh, so our guest is is Byron McFadden. He is a political analyst specialising in uh, China and East Africa mostly, and he's a damn commie. What's up with us in commies these days? Two in a row. I think I think we we're very generous. We're giving them a lot of airtime. That's probably why you guys are number one. You know. We, you know. <laughs> what do commies know about competition? We've seized we've seized the we're means the best of critic, podcast production. Best critics of it for sure. <laughs> All right, so. We don't. We. I, I don't know. We do. We want to talk tons about uh, about. Uh, no, no, no. I mean, just socialism, I mean, communism, Marxism is the least interesting bit of Byron, if I can say so myself. So I mean, obviously, Marxism, as preached by Marx and Engels, and the way it was practiced, is is different slightly. Um, I've, I'm not a big fan of like. There's no true communists have ever been, you know, has ever been tried. No true communism has ever been tried. But, I mean, so... I'd like to interject on yeah, that point. So, you, so you're a Marxist. Why, yeah. why do you do it? I, I want to touch on a word you used there. You said uh, preached from uh, by, by Marx and Engels, which is uh, where part of the problem came, which your guest touched on a lot of uh, what, what, what happened, what went wrong, essentially, in the 20th century with the Bolsheviks coming. They were the ones who uh, basically dictated, they, they created a doctrine out of Marxism. Where I stand, Marxism is an analytical framework. It's uh, and a set of values that uh, you hold dear, and the analytical framework is a way to 
look at society and the actions that you can take in society to to get your values um, practiced, um, to create a more equitable society, a society based on solidarity, a society uh, that lessens conflict between the classes, lessens, lessens exploitation. But there are practical aspects that have to be have to be um, understood, and that's where the analytical framework is. You have to look at the economic structure, the social structure, cultural structure of a, of a country before you actually come with a plan. Whereas the Bolsheviks said, hey, look what we did in Russia. Everybody, you've got to seize the state, you've got to take power, and you've got to use power brutally in order to exact what we say you have to exact. There are different schools of thought in Marxism. There's a guy called Antonio Gramsci who talked about how you have to seize uh, hegemony. You've got to create hegemony before you seize the state because then when you seize the state, um, you've already done the hard work. You haven't had to use violence, brutality in order to, let's say, win, as he calls it, the war of position and maneuver, the war of culture, the war of ideas, um, which need to be uh, put in place through various factors before you seize the state. Okay, but what is the, what is the end game then? Why why bother seizing the state? The end game is uh, a better life, really. I mean, it's, it's pretty simplistic. It's pretty idealistic in many ways, but there are steps. There are practical practical examples that can be put in place. Practical steps, but again, it, it's not a one size fits all. It's a, it's an understanding, you know. And I'd like to say that capitalism has made similar mistakes in terms of how they try to push liberal economics on countries that were not ready. We've got the uh, structural adjustment programs in Africa. Oh, yeah, I, mean, I fully the agree SAPs. with you. The IMF and all that, they, they screw up all yeah. sorts of they things. They say, hey, this worked in America. Look at our entrepreneurial model. Look how we did it. I mean, they, they, they don't take into account the robber barons. They don't take into account massive interventions, massive crushing of labor in America. Genocide, not to, not to put too fine a, a point on that, you know. And then they say, hey, look what we did in America. works for us. Let's apply that everywhere. It's uh, it's not not how it works, you know. Every 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 facticity, every reality, every every economy is different. They've got different pressures that we all have to take into account. Before, and, well, before we before we get into the differences around around all, you, you know, you've worked in Africa in the middle, um, the far east. Uh, is uh, is the fact that you know no society really works uh, according to a Marxist or socialist principle unless you force it? Isn't that a rejection of the entire concept? I disagree that no society works according to, to Marxist principles. No society works to uh, autocratic principles. So Bolshevism, the whole point of Bolshevism, the link between, between them and uh, authoritarianism, is that they seized the state. Um, they needed to exact their policies right after World War I, uh, which required heavy amounts of discipline, heavy amounts of violence in order to coerce people. But there are many examples of where, where socialism um, has worked, um, where there are values of socialism that I think we can all agree on. Your previous guest talked about some of the, the liberal values that, that socialism embraces. Um, you've got groups in, uh, for example, example, in Brazil, uh, MST, uh, Sentera, which was one of the big uh, cooperative movements that backed uh, dis, uh, the Workers' Party in, in uh, Brazil coming to power. Now, these are cooperatives um, based on local communities who seized land. They seized um, uh, vacant land that wasn't being used for any productive purposes. They set up cooperatives. Some of these cooperatives now are worth tens of millions in revenue every year. They plow that money back into the cooperative, setting up dairy farms. Some of them supply uh, international corporates like Parmalot. Um, and etc. They they also plow the money back into schools, back into education, um, in order to develop the economy further. So there there are examples of of how it works. But there's also pressures. You get countries like Nicaragua, when uh, they had, um, and El Salvador, when they had uh, Marxist governments in place, the Americans deliberately undermined them through through certain um, flooding the markets with certain goods, so that they were absolutely unsustainable, crashed their economies. So. You know, there, there are factors that have to be, have to be taken in account. And again, you know, I think life is about experimentation. 
there's, there's two people who said that there's going to be an end of history. The one was Karl Marx. He said, once we achieve communism, that's an end of history. The other one was Francis Fukuyama, who said, um, after the fall of the commun- of the Berlin Wall, um, this is the end of history. Capitalism is one. This is it. It's going to be like this forever. And I think that that's a, a very miserable take on, on the world. We should experiment. We should get better. We should all strive for, um, you know, the universe they got in Star Trek or okay, something, but, <laughs> you know? Sure. So, but shouldn't we acknowledge that, for example, Fine, you may have a cooperative in Brazil, which uh, for in the overall scheme of things is relatively small. Whenever we've tried these ideas, and you say there's many examples where they've worked, I, I, I think I can't let you go on that. I mean, there might be small examples, um, and it's the same as when Ramon argues for uh, anarchy, an anarchic sort of, not a state, but a, an anarchy, society. Um, an anarchic society, you know, in groups of, you know, a hundred or a few hundred, it, it might work. Um uh, the same thing seems to apply with these sort of socialist principles. The minute you try to expand them onto greater levels, we have uh, great examples that they fail all the time. Venezuela is a failure. Cuba is a failure. Uh, the the uh, just a, the other day I saw um, China with regards to their communist state. Up to the eighties, uh, something like eighty to ninety percent of the people lived below the. Po- the poverty line, so to speak, uh, they then embrace basically capitalism over the next 25 to 30 years, and you now have something like less than 10% of poverty in that country. It, it, so we, we do have great examples. Um, it's not to say that I disagree with the experimentation. Mm. It's just is there not some acknowledgement? So you talk about capitalism having made errors, and capitalism admits to making errors all the time. In fact, people who support capitalism greatly uh, have great disagreements. You, you know, you've got Paul Krugman, who is a capitalist, but criticizes basic free market principle all the time, um, and the opposite side doing the same thing. Um, I don't commonly hear Marxists and socialists doing the same. Well, yeah, I don't think you're listening to the right Marxists and socialists. I mean, there's okay. a lot. There's a lot of there's a lot of internal criticism, but there should be more. And one of the problems was is, is again historical context. I mean, um, the the ideology of Marxism. Was dominated by the Bolshevik Party in in Russia, by the uh, the Russian the Russian um, Politburo essentially. When they funded the the Chinese Communist Party, they refused to have any anybody who um, had a different model about how things should work. Now, what they have in China, they call it uh, communism with Chinese characteristics. And I think that one of the key points uh, to this is um, that the Russian model took out responsiveness of the state. It took out a certain um, democracy, a certain democratic power where um, a state is, is responsive. So you've got in China um, a highly responsive government because, to digress a bit, there's two forms of legitimacy that a government can have. One is, um, well, there's multiple forms. But in South Africa, for example, we've got electoral legitimacy. If you win an election, you're a legitimate government. That's it. You're a, you're a procedurally legitimate government, regardless of the fact that the government has not kept its promises, regardless of the fact that there's a, a massive gap in service delivery. But um, in China, the government is responsive not because of elections, but because they're afraid. They're afraid of their people. In Kenya, people are, which, which I have personal experiences, which is why I bring it up, people, uh, government is afraid of the people. And that, that is an aspect that I think can be um, dif- uh, differentiated and taken apart from um, the, the model, as you say, of, of, of communist failures. And you're right, there isn't enough self-criticism. And I, do, th- I believe, do believe that that's a failure in that school of thought. But on the same time, there, there, there has been. So that, that I think just doesn't get, uh, doesn't get prominent airtime. So before we get to the geopolitical stuff, which will be the, the crux of this, uh, well, not argument, debate, so to speak, um, what, 
necessarily defines you from your average, for the lack of a better term, like your social justice warrior, right? So you got these Marxists who are like 19 and they see power structures everywhere and the white males at the top and the black trans lesbian in the wheelchairs at the bottom. And that's Muslim. a huge, uh, and the Muslim. <laughs> and, and, and that's a huge problem. Yeah. So, so they're, they're very moralistic about their, their identity yeah. and their politics. Well, which is an offshoot of Marxism in a way. But I, I, a I, would, I, would, I would fundamentally disagree with that. So there's, this, there's this common misconceptions about Marxism, which are probably held more by Marxists than people who aren't. One of the things is that, that, that Marxism is a moralizing, ethical um, foundation. You know, It's not. Uh, Marx justified his theories by um, as an analytical framework. He said, this is how society works. This is what happens because this is the way that society works. And he appealed to a certain scientific logic. Uh, that said that justified his theories, not ethics. You know, ethics are, are kind of besides the point. Marx wasn't an ethicist. He said, this is the analytical framework. This is my economic model. This is the way that, again, to reiterate, I see it, but there's nothing moral about it. The mor- morality changes. Morality is fluid throughout history. One of the things um, that he also talks about is is how we, we normalize our, our our culture. We normalize our ethics. But our ethics today are not the same. Any, any student of history will tell you that the ethics in m- medieval times, the ethics in... Um, well, different parts of the world. Different at the parts same of the time world today, right? And ethics are based on. They're meant to be pragmatic. First of all, different ethics um, evolve in different places, um, based fundamentally on on, on economic um, determinants. So, I mean, that's that's one of the key ideas in, in Marxism is economic determinism. Um, which states, without going into too much technicality about Marxism, is that the economic substructure is what dictates the superstructure. The superstructure is made up of culture, it's made up of activities, it's made up of identities. A lot of these identities are atomizing and, 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 and alienating. And that's why I talk again about the, the values of Marxism. One is solidarity. And I totally agree that this, this, this identity, this increasing atomization that happens with hyper identity takes away. It's like, yes, we're all workers, but you're a black worker, you're a woman worker, you're a man worker, regardless of the fact that we all face the same social pressures. And I think taking it back to South African content, I think Steve Biko had a lot of insight into this where he believed that one of the things that would make South Africa fundamentally different from other post-colonial states is that because of apartheid, because of the history that we have, a black lawyer, a black banker, a black businessman would all live in the same neighborhood. They'd have the same bus. They'd have the same shared experience, which they would take with them to liberation. Now, the ANC, I think, undermined that with their uh, their development policy after 94 uh, to a large extent. I mean, Moletzi Mbeki himself uh, Tabo Mbeki's brother, obviously, uh, I think taking a note from Franz Fanon, he said that um, BE didn't fail in South Africa. BE did exactly what the ANC wanted it to do. It created a small black middle class, a small black elite, which owed their economic stability to the ANC and therefore their loyalty to the ANC. Once you control the, the, the middle class, um, you control a, a large section of the economy, you control a large section of, uh, section of the ideological control in society. And that's um, falling into the trap for what Franz Fernand did. And Mbeki was a big mover of that. You know, we talk about how mm. how you how how we kind of um, let's say uh, valorize history. It's always better in the past. You know, we had so much complaints about Mbeki, but now we've got Zuma, and we're like, oh, Mbeki wasn't that bad. He was a, a technocrat. You know, pe- pe- people, uh, business people especially love technocrats. You know, so they got all these fond memories, regardless of his horrific policies in terms of um, his, his the way that he, he he ripped the democracy out of the ANC. He made it a top-down authoritarian structure, which is now what Zuma's playing on. Um, and of course his AIDS policy and all of that. So, um, yeah, a lot of mistake. All right. Mm. Um, I, I want to go back a little bit. Sure. Uh, we come back to the ANC stuff, uh, cause there's a lot in what you said there. Uh, how is, 
you talked about moralism and, and how Marx didn't moralize. But if you're identifying different class groups and then trying to make it fair for everyone, that's moralizing. So he doesn't appeal to, to morality in, in, in his, his ultimate justification. So maybe a bit of historical perspective. So Marx wrote um, uh, Das Kapital, most of his books, in um, – the the wake of the uh, scientific revolution. It's a little known uh, fact that uh, Karl Marx initially wanted to dedicate uh, Das Kapital to um, Charles Darwin because he was so influenced by Charles Darwin's theory of evolution. Yeah, but Charles Darwin wrote back. He's like, oh, I, I don't understand enough about economics. But actually, he didn't want to be associated with this really rough political stuff. But essentially um, – uh, Marx justified his theories. Um, and your guest last week said, uh, recommended you read the Communist Manifesto. The immortal words at the beginning of the Communist Manifesto is, the history of all hitherto society is the history of class struggle. And if you look um, at the evolution of society, at least according to Marx, you can disagree, but every um, epoch of history, as he calls them, from um, primitive communism, apart from primitive communism, from early agriculture to slavery-based economies to feudalism, um, now we're in, we're in the capitalist epoch, um, have all been characterized by fundamental strife between different interests in society. And that's what, what Marxism fundamentally is about, is identifying those interests. So there is a fundamental uh, difference in interests between a boss and an employer, to, to put it simply. You know, the, the, the less I pay you, the more I make. But as a worker, I want to I get a decent wage. As a, as a boss, you want to minimize your, uh, maximize your margins, minimize your costs. So there's a fundamental economic disparity there. Marx said that these fundamental disparities – which he called contradictions, would eventually lead to a change in society, which he believed would happen slowly in terms of small step changes, which would eventually culminate in a revolution, which is again goes into dialectical theory, which is um, you have a thesis and you have the antithesis, which are two opposing forces. Then they collide and they, they form the synthesis. Uh, which is the best of both worlds. So now, interestingly enough, you know, Karl Marx is a critic of capitalism, but he also believed that capitalism is the best system that has ever come from uh, compared to the systems that came before. With capitalism came increased productivity, increased workers' rights, because now workers were closer to the economy, to who produces wealth in society. They're still getting exploited, um, and there's, there's other theories in that. The, the capitalists still have their agenda um, to, to, to maximize profits, to accumulate, to create more conflict in society. But ultimately, capitalism is a massive improvement. But he still believed that there are still fundamental contradictions that exist between the different interests. And he believed that because of these contradictions, we would have a essentially an uprising where the workers would take control. Because fundamentally, the power lies with the workers ec- economically in terms of numbers, in terms of all of this. And when that happens, it's going to happen according to these historical forces that he referred to as, as, as dialectic materialism. The economic contradictions lead to conflict, which then lead to evolution. And capitalism is a necessary stage of that. Communism is not a eradication of capitalism. It takes all the good things that capitalism created and creates a new dispensation with uh, a greater equality, more more social um, beneficiation to, 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 to all the different groups. I mean, well, to the one group actually, because you have no need for groups. Um, I mean, that, that, that I mean, it sounds good, right? So the problem with Marxism, it's, it's fairly utopian, and sure. I think I think Marxists do understand that. Yeah. But all those 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 benefits that you've just described have come under neoliberalism. You know, the big N word, uh, the other N word, not, mm. not the first one, the, the other N word. I mean, I mean, we, we we have to be serious here. The 20th century, other than the wars. Um, has been rather good uh, because the markets have expanded and, and a whole lot of things yeah. have happened and, and, and a lot more, uh, you know, wages have increased substantially, more rights. Um, now, this is an, in- an interesting point right. um, because um, 
again, I wouldn't disagree with you that there there, there are benefits, but there, there are also the contradictions. And and uh, I don't want to get too too economically technical uh, because I'd probably fall on my face. But um, Marx has a theory called um, accumul- um, profit accumulation, essentially, where um, uh, capital has a, a, a accumulation crisis where the levels of profitability increase to such an extent that there are not uh, effective avenues for re-employing uh, uh, those profits into creating productive capital. And then you have a situation of wage stagnation because um, there's this crisis. It, we, capitalism has got various responses to it. If you look at the financialization in the in the uh, in Wall Street, etc. I mean, uh, yeah. in, uh, which which has, has, has led to um, a lot of the the, the kind of fi- current financial problems that we have. But um, and if you look at the stats, there's been wage stagnation in America since 1970. Um, you talk about how capitalism has made things better. Capitalism made things better by exporting, by the internationalization of capitalism, by creating a first to the bottom kind of dynamic where you can uh, make better profits if you export, uh, if you move your business to Bangladesh, start making textile there and you only have to pay a Bangladeshi worker like a dollar an hour as composed to $12,000 a month to an American worker so still a dollar more than he was earning before and it's got and it's got greater purchasing power but essentially um, the idea is is that there's still going to be this uh, point that comes where wage stagnation occurs where um, the the workers get um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for Uh, D uh, they get um, disenchanted. They get disenchanted with uh, with the system so, of place. So, and so, so can I say that mm. you talk about revolution uh, and the workers getting disenchanted, uh, and this will happen and whatever. Well, it's happening all the time, and this is why I don't understand why you aren't a big fan of Trump and a huge supporter of Brexit, because the workers in uh, the I UK, never said I wasn't. <laughs> I well, well, I know you're not a big fan of Trump. <laughs> yeah, I, mean, yeah, I don't know what you feel fair. about that's Brexit, um, but the workers in in the UK turned around and, and said, "Screw you to mm. to their state." Um, from disenchantment, supposedly, sure. um, and and went Brexit. Uh, the same happened in Middle America. Uh, they rejected they rejected the system, and and so um, uh, they didn't completely reject the system. They worked. They used the system to reject uh, what they don't like uh, to take something new. And and this is this is my fundamental issue, obviously, from a classically liberal perspective, sure. is that uh, Marxism wants to see people as, as those groups instead of as individuals. Um, and so The difference that, is how Marx defines the groups. Yeah. So Marx defines groups as your relation to production. A worker is a worker, regardless of what skin color, what gender, what, uh, what race, what, et cetera, that he is, what, ethnic, what, what religion, and all that. Um, but uh, the capitalist, as, as the bourgeoisie, et cetera, have a different relation to production. So he says that there is solidarity between all workers, between all disenfranchised people, and that's the groups that, he's, that, 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 that he believes exists. But the more that you atomize, the more that you say um, that – my lived ex- you can't understand my lived experience because i'm this type of person in this type of context etc the more that you 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 break up the the levels of solidarity in society that could actually are, are where the power in working people lies it's 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 in cooperative um uh, movement towards um a better a better society as opposed to having a certain group at the top which just looks after its own interests um at the expense of the people below them but um, those are the fundamental groups. So there is groupings, but this idea of ethnicity, it's also problematic because, you know, race, race is a myth. It doesn't exist. There's no, there's no fundamental um, practical difference uh, between the races. But because, of, because some, some ethno, ethno, ethnographer back in the 1800s said, you've got this, you're this type of person, therefore 
you know, you, you have these kind of rights, etc. They actually made those fundamental economic rights, uh, ec- uh, economic realities where race, which is a, a mythical thing, has now become a practical thing. Well, race purely. isn't mythical. Race is uh, uh, biological. If you love Darwin so much, race is real. So I'm not saying there's uh, major differences in terms of our abilities. The differences humans. are irrelevant in terms of how we organize our society. In terms of how we organize our society. Well, maybe. Maybe they are and maybe they aren't. There's a reason why uh, black athletes are so much better than white athletes in so many areas of sport. But we don't um, run the Olympics at the UN. Um, hey? We don't run the Olympics at the UN. Although, you know, if we're going to bring fist fighting um, back into, into, into parliamentary politics, yes, maybe, yes. maybe then that, that does become relevant. Maybe Floyd Mayweather um, could be the next president. We could, we could have um, the, the, uh, the gentleman from Idiocracy, you know. Big muscle-bound bound presidents. So hold on but a we second. Get back it's, to it's Trump. A, it, we're moving goalposts yeah, a yeah, little yeah, bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure. Um, why is so? So the race doesn't matter. It matters, but it doesn't matter to what? To the worker? To the to that class? To that structure? That 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 um, theory around around the worker and the working class and their struggle. It it creates um, an unnecessary uh, veil of difference where where fundamentally. Um, our relations to the economy and our relation because that, that's essentially what society is about. It's about how we organize our economy, mm-hmm. how we organize our structures of, of society. Races is, is, is not, is, is not relevant to that. It's, yeah, it's, agreed. it's who owns the means of production. And I, and I don't want to get too, too technical yeah. and, and ideological about it, but who yeah. owns the means of production sure. and then who is exploited by those productive relations which develop from that. And that is the fundamental difference. So, and so, if one worker goes, screw this, I, I don't like working in this larger collective of being the worker at the mine or whatever the example happens to be. Uh, because I'm assuming, you know, if we bring it into reality, into a real space, that's what it is. It's, it's large groups of workers. You'd go to someone like Anglo-American and you'd look and go, well, they've employed 30,000 people or whatever they employ. And that's the, the collective, right? Mm. But one of those workers could, could easily go, well, I'll give you an example of someone I know who did this. Uh, I uh, know a bit about mining now. I've been working for Anglo-American kind of at very much at the bottom. I, I literally started chopping rocks out of a, a, a rock face. Uh, and uh, I'm originally from Zimbabwe, and I actually know a piece of land where there's uh, a probably good prospect for gold. And I'm, I'm going to uh, lift myself up, and, and I'm going to make myself the bourgeoisie. So mm. why why so, is there such a so, such a... A feeling I, to against that. I, I, I like to call that the uh, uh, the cult of entrepreneurship. Now, I'm not saying I'm not saying that those people don't exist, but I see it a lot like the prosperity gospel. You know, it's like you're you're not you're not successful in business. Your 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 family's not doing well because you don't pray hard enough. You are not dedicating yourself enough to this avenue that we tell you is the right avenue to get wealth. You're not praying. The same thing happens with this, this this ideology of entrepreneurship that we're getting, where everyone can be an entrepreneur. The, the facts of the economy don't work that way. There is a certain there's a certain basis that an entrepreneur needs. There's also a lot of failure that happens in the entrepreneurial sector. I mean, South Africa, what is it? One in one in three businesses succeed, probably less than that. Probably less. Yeah. So I think I think to put put hope in the people who do make it to the top, and I'm not I'm not saying that they they're not there. I don't want to degrade their um, their achievements, but to say that that is a route out of poverty for every single person when there are so many structural pressures. That are there are play in society is 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 is, is, is disingenuous. It's a very narrow way of, of looking about how we can benefit society as a whole. And again, it goes to um, to the idea of individuality, which is so central to capitalism. Capitalism is an individuality based um, yep. uh, mindset, um, and you know that's that's a, that's a perfectly reasonable philosophical uh, position to take. That I'm an individual. I believe in individual rights. 
I, on the other hand, I, I differ with that. I believe in um, more emphasis on collective rights. But I, I also believe that you can't have effective collective rights unless you have a certain basis of individual rights. But I don't see individual rights as trumping all else. I think that there needs to be a balance. And I think that that balance also has to be done on a social social level. Um, well, I mean, that's what the Constitution's for, right? I mean, it gives you <clears throat> individual rights, uh, but but your rights ends when when you infringe another one, and they are limited by the state mm-hmm. if there's a, a broader good to be had from a law or something like that. Yeah, I, I, you know, you could look at it from from both perspectives in terms of looking at at at, the, at constitutional power. One one is the constitution is there to give power, but also I think primarily it's there to limit power. You know, so well, it's supposed to. Yeah. yeah, but you can look at it from either perspective. You sure. can say, "I'm given these rights, therefore I am empowered by the constitution," or the constitution is there because of the three branches of government, balance of powers, blah blah blah. Therefore, um, it limits power. So, you know, a, a, a koi or a goldfish grows to the size of its bowl. The constitution is there to limit the size of the bowl that that power can be. And this this again goes to to, to questions of the state and and the purpose of the state. So, and this again goes to some of the, the issues of Marxism that we're talking about. The Bolsheviks said we need to seize power of the state, but maybe there's some truth to the phrase that um, power corrupts absolute. Power corrupts absolutely. Whereas someone like Antonio Gramsci said, no, we have to seize power before we seize the state. We have to work outside of the uh, mechanisms of the state to create parallel um, institutions of power so that when we seize the state, it's irrelevant already because we were, yeah. we've already, we've already yeah, created that mindset. We've the culture already, already exists, right? Mm. So one last question about Marxism. Do you think once, once the robotic overlords do all the routine work for us… Led by Elon Musk, I understand. He's, he's, he's big into cybernetics now. Yeah. Okay. But Hopefully we, he won't be around for that much longer. Yeah. He hates Elon Musk for reasons I can't fathom. But anyway, I suspect talk- he might be an evil genius, not just a genius. He's sending pathogens into space that could kill us all. He's you sociopathic. Know, he's, There's no doubt about it. Hopefully so. Yeah. Um, but nevertheless, so if once the robotic overlords actually do routine work, say hypothetically we all get five, uh, what, five thousand dollars from the state every month as a UB- basic minimum as yeah. a UBI. Uh, we don't actually actually have to produce anything anymore. Mm. Um, everything's all our needs are met through robots. Do you think that would be the synthesis of Adam, Adam Smith and um, Karl Marx? Well, you know, um, Oscar- then Marxism. Sorry, no, no. sorry, because then Marxism has no more point. Well, that's the whole point. It's not meant to have a point, but it's it's a question of who controls production, who controls the benefits of production. Yes. So, you know, Marx has a certain um, uh, uh, labor theory of value uh, where uh, the best way to put it is, is a metaphor. You get a block of wood. That block of wood costs a dollar. Um, you get a, a worker. You, you own the factory. Worker turns that into a chair. You sell that for you know, 50 bucks. That means you made $40, $49 profit. Now, the question is, where does that profit come from? What is the, the fundamental aspect that creates that $40, $49 difference between the block of wood and what you sell it for? And Karl Marx said that that's, that's your labor. Yeah. Labor makes the difference. And, and most, a lot of classical economists kind of have similar views, but um, in terms of labor is the, the differentiating point. And what Marx says is that what happens in, in capitalism is that we're paid wages. We're paid a, a wage salary. And, as, and in that wage salary, they hide the benefits of our labor. So the, they keep – and that's, that, that's defined as profit. The boss keeps the profit. He pays us. He pays us a wage, um, and that you know, in in, in some ways, is, is considered uh, economic theft. It's alienation of the worker from the product of his labor. Now, in an ultimate society, you'd want to have with the means of production and the benefits thereof are are equitably distributed b- between society. And I just want to say, um, there's a essay by um, Oscar Wilde. 
um, the, the poet and writer. He he he. It was called the the soul of man under socialism, mm. um, where he where he basically uh, talks about how the ultimate pursuit of man is leisure, not work. We want to spend our time in the things that make us happy. We want to indulge in art, you know, be with our family, do things that are productive, do things that benefit society as a whole, rather than. I don't like the term, but being wage slaves uh, yes. in nine to five, etc. And ultimately, he saw even with this in the eighteen hundreds, the mechanization, the increased mechanization, as a medium to do that, where we could have uh, uh, less hour working weeks, etc. That we could actually spend our time in leisure and not um, working for a system that we don't see the benefits of our work, essentially. Yeah, I mean, if, for my ideal society, to be honest with you, would be routine work would be uh, completely automated, and the work that we do will be completely creative according to, to our own thinking and brain. So there will be a lot more poets and filmmakers and mm. uh, who knows what else, uh, singers. Innovators, But, but, you're, not really, but well. you're not really exploiting the workers, so to speak, by doing that, mm. right? You you. Well, because there's social benefit. Right. You need the mechanisms in place where benefit is, is, is distributed. And, that, and that's, that's, that's all that, it, that economics is about, no matter what branch you're in. It's about how you distribute um, uh, scarce resources. A scarce resource being what, you, what, what is produced. Well, by, what, well that, that's the first rule of economics, right? Yeah. Allocation of scarce resources. Yeah. And currently we have a system of allocation of scarce resources where um, people who own capital get uh, the benefits from capital. We want to see a system… And- but people who own capital, so just to go sure. back to your block of wood becoming a chair, mm. people who own capital don't buy the block of wood for a dollar and sell it for 50 bucks as a chair once a worker has made it a chair. They do do that, but they provide the worker with a place to work. They take the risk by financing the factory at the bank. The worker takes none of that risk. Uh, they buy the nails. They buy the equipment. Uh, they then replace that equipment. They pay the insurance on that equipment. So it's a bit more of a complex issue. If, if you, oh, if absolutely. You, if you, if you, if you sell it as a one dollar block of wood, um, I buy a one dollar block of wood. I force you to then, well, not force you, but I pay you nine dollars to then make a chair for me and sell it at forty bucks profit. Well, that's not exactly. So I mean, this this comes this comes to questions also of, of of historical determinism. I mean, who owns the factory? Who owns the wealth in society? There's a big historical dynamic to that, and you know, you could say, oh yes, we can overcome that through social mobility, etc. You can look at, at rates of social mobility in different countries, but by and large, the countries that have a more equitable distribution have, have greater levels of of of, um, of social mobility. But if you leave it. To the capitalist, and I'm not saying that this is this is unnatural. Anything. This is just how how ec- ec- economics and power work. Is that without proper uh, mechanisms of distribution, uh, that farm uh, that uh, factory owner is going to keep the factory that he that he had the capital from from, from his own um, you know historical. Uh, uh, the determinants. Um, he'll he'll keep the profit from that. That'll be passed down to his uh, his lineage, and essentially um, capital will get smaller and smaller. But even then, I mean, there's also uh, capitalists eat each other all the time as well. So you, you get a certain uh, case of monopolization that happens. If you look at m- numerous industries, I mean, you just have to look at uh, how Bayer just bought Monsanto. You have to look at how even um, Noam Chomsky wrote a book, uh, Manufacturing Consent, where he outlines all the different media companies and who owns them. Even since he wrote that book, um, they've been monopolized into even smaller groups of, of ownership. Now, I think there's like four or five big corporations that control all the media in the world. You know, capitalists eat their own. It's the nature of the system. Competition, destructive creativity, you know, and, and, and this is not 
uh, a sustainable um, um, method of organizing well, our society in, in a lot of uh, people's perspective. Yeah, look, I mean, that's, it's, it, that's a debate. I, sure. I think, you know, you, you, you mentioned sort of media companies buying each other out and we have giant media companies. Sure, and then as a free marketer, I'm just going to say to you, well, then what happens is when, when uh, CNN uh, and other companies are all owned by one owner, essentially, then you get uh, emergence of a whole bunch of new companies. No, and, but that's the wrong question. Monopolies cannot exist in, an, in a true free market. I disagree. And, I, and I'll tell you, I mean, you look at a true free market, there's no more true free market um, then uh, the, the cocaine trade, then drugs. You look at the cartels that develop in there, and you don't have a, a monopoly. Is not just um, how, how is that a free market? You get shot if you if you interfere. It's 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 business by other means. It's a way of 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 of, of positioning yourself in order to capitalize. Yeah, there's no regulations. There's no the regulations rights. essentially. There's no there's, there's, there's no one taxing these people. There's no regulations from state. But I'm sorry, the guys who run the biggest cartels are the state, and their their punishment for messing with with their 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 uh, means of business is death. So so the, there is no big difference. If you if you Escobar, if you're Escobar, the problem is 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 it's, it's a free market because you Escobar. But if if I'm now want to start up in competition to Escobar, I'm dead the next day. But I think there are, there, there there are metaphorical parallels towards business. You look at the startups that happen. You how difficult it is yeah. to break into a market. And I, do, I do agree with you that the state does absolutely have a role in maintaining monopolies and maintaining cartels. I mean, Karl Marx talks about how the state is a, a vehicle for capital. Essentially, they're, they're, they're representatives of, 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 of big business in, in government. They make sure that the interests of, of capital, I mean, you talk specifically about protection of private property, etc., um, are there in order to protect cartels. I mean, there, and there's all kinds of regulations um, that look after vested interests, and the state is there to make sure that those vested interests um, you know, I, but but it's not a one-way street either, because a lot of people see problems with monopolies. They see problem with exorbitant power by corporations, and the state feels that pressure. And the only reason the state has felt that pressure is because of responsiveness, because because of 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 uh, conflict from the people who are being screwed by this system, saying no, we're not going to live up to this. Ever since capitalism first started to develop in the 1700s, going on to industrialization in the 1800s, there have been workers' movements saying that this is unfair, this is not just, our conditions are terrible, and the only reason reason that the state actually made things better, introducing um, health protocols, introducing you know, things like basic minimum wage, basic safety standards, Ooh, etc. The, the state did not stop those things, sir. The state was forced to. The, the Ford and, Motor Company started those things, the five-hour the five no, day no, no, working no. week. Long before that. And all that. Long before no, that. The labor was, movement in the UK. Ford Motor Company was, was, was a century after the fact. Look, all I'm saying is that the concessions that are made are made because, because workers forced them to. And also, you go into... That's an interesting case. That man was a megalomaniac. The only reason he gave his, 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 his workers concessions, well, not the only reason, but the reason he gave his workers concessions because he, he, he expected absolute and complete obedience and compliance. As a Ford worker, he, you had to say that a, um, a Ford representative could come into your family at any time, make sure that you were living up to his protocols and his, his designs. There's an interesting um, hidden history about a lot, a lot of these people in America um, in terms of uh, their, their megalomaniacal hey, kind listen, of tendencies. Listen, I think the average, the average billionaire is, is, is some sort of psychopath of sorts. There'd be right? psychological studies. I, I have, no, I have no great love for billionaires or, or, or rich people in general. Some, uh, some deserve to be rich, some don't. I don't give a shit at the end of the day. Uh, but if, if you are worried about inequality, which, which Marxists are, I'm not really worried about it. I'm only worried about inequality if um, there is absolutely no way of actually getting 
up the social ladder. Mm. And that is done primarily through the state. Getting up the social ladder. Yeah. Done through the state. Yeah. Or, or there's, there's the, the uh, what you call it, um, the hindrances to getting up on the social ladder is primarily done through the state. Through minimum wage laws, through, through licensing, through regulations, through, uh, preferred Preferred tax, um, whatever schemes. I mean, the state does all that, right? So, I mean, get rid of the state. There'll be more equality. Simple. Or we'll get rid of the stuff. I don't, I don't think I quite follow your logic on that. <laughs> but all right. Well, um, well, if, if, if he's talking about if you want to start a business, building cars, for example. You, you want to start in competition to Ford. Um, the, the, the things that in modern day will stop you from doing that are that the state says, well, uh, to – I'll give you a couple examples on this particular point, analogy. The state says you have to have a factory of this size to build a car. You can't have a factory smaller than that. You also have to have fire and safety, and you have to have a fire and safety officer, which will cost you money you don't have. And every car needs um, five um, airbags. But, but exactly. And then there's That's safety regulations for cars. And then there's, of course, environmental. We don't like the fact that you're using coal to power your uh, generators, so uh, you need to not do that um, to compete with Ford, who's had 100 years to now build the solar plant. Uh, the, those are the points that Ramon's making, which government sure. uh, throws and in. That, and, and what's hilarious is is, is that uh, often people that want to make society more fair are the ones that back a lot of these regulations. I mean, the US, they're going nuts about Trump clamping down on the EPA. The EPA is out of control. It's not to say that they should be destroying the environment. It's to, it's to that they've gone too far. But how do you prevent... Okay, look, I, I don't want to get into, yeah. into defending a straw man here. Yeah. I'm, I'm not a yeah. fan of the state. I understand its, um, its benefits, but also its, its, its downside. But or, or regulation. I don't yeah. think that that's an argument that I, we need, particularly need to get into. But I mean, um, you know, there, there, there is a certain level of externalization of costs with businesses. You say that, I mean, without worker safety, without minimum wage, without all of that, mm. the, the market, the invisible hand of the market would magically raise uh, the standards of all these people. But if you look at before regulation became a, 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 th a thing in, in, in the modern uh, industrialized world, uh, levels of, of worker mortality, uh, worker, uh, levels of, of, of death by, by pollution, externalization of costs, which um, the capitalists don't have to pay for because the profit motive is, is overriding. But, um, and I think that there needs to be a balance, and that balance comes from uh, resistance, from from the people who are suffering um, those uh, those work related fatalities, from those mm -hmm. people who are suffering um, abject poverty, um, people who are living from hand to mouth. You can't lift up your family if you if everything you spend is on basic sustenance, sure. and you you can't send your kid to school. Look, you know, look. so and 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 who is going to do that? It's not, capitalists aren't out of the goodness of their heart. Even cap, even 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 people like Milton Friedman would ad admit that capitalists are not going to do anything out of the goodness of their heart. They're going to do it because of 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 so of, um, can of, I, of motivation. Can I give you an example? Centralization, etc. So I, I I I'm a doctor. If I wanted to, I could earn a hundred thousand dollars a month. How could I do that? I could go on a contract and work in Afghanistan. It's perfectly available to me currently. The reason I don't do that is because I look at the option and it's completely unsafe. It would be, in my opinion, stupid. There are some people who don't think it's stupid and it's worth the risk. Um, no one is regulating that. No one is controlling that. I choose to make a lot less money than that um, simply because I make a decision. So th that's the whole point about the market. So, so – I, I, this is also where, where I would make a differentiation is, yes, you get individuals. We're, 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 we're a diverse species, you know, in, in so many different ways. Mm. But there are systemic pressures. There are certain forces that 
create certain outcomes by and large as in terms of, uh, in terms of trends, in terms of percentages. To point out to somebody who has a certain, I mean, I was, you know, I, I was born into an upper middle class family, whatever. I could have chosen to be on the street, but I didn't. But there's some people who do. There's some people it's who drop privilege. out of society. But yeah, exactly. That's my privilege. My privilege <laughs> is to be homeless, for sure. Yeah. Not to be homeless. Yeah. All that. Yeah. You know, so, um, and, and that's fine. There are individuals who can make all these, but there are systemic pressures yeah. that come from economic forces. They come from government. They come from a variety of different places. And that's what Marx is, 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 is interested in, is identifying those social forces that create certain outcomes and, um, and really critiquing them, essentially. Okay. I mean, yeah, but, I mean, I, I can accept that. I think 40, 50 minutes of Marxism has done my head in. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, actually, I wanted to say, let's I'm get on to China. I've actually, I mean, well, I, I mean, more of the economics. I, that was, I think, well, for me personally, that it's, it's a very productive a definition of Marxism, especially your last sentence. So I, I do hope people actually understand it more because the reason I wanted to bring you on the show was for people to understand what Marxism is because people use Marxism in a straw man. Sure. And we do it too sometimes, to be fair. Though we do like trading. So is it a straw man if we're trading? I don't know. Nevertheless, so, but your, your, your expertise is in consulting. Like every fucking white person does yeah, consulting. Yeah, yeah. They're these all days. consultants. Uh, I've got a whole bunch I'm of friends. A, and then I ask them, it's I'm like bribes and things. Too. What do you do? I'm a consultant. I'm like, what does that mean? And then you, and then it's they very, often we can't consult. tell you. Sure. <laughs> exactly. We consult, yeah. which usually means we go for lunch in Santon every yes. day. And then we get flown out to say a speech or to listen to a speech and then yeah. they fly back. And then one day that someone did tell me basically what we do is people start these companies and then they don't know actually how to solve relatively Normal problems, and so they need a consulting firm to do that. Well, actually, you know, in South Africa, there's a there's a dearth of of consulting because there was a certain time in uh, in, in 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 the banking financial sector where they decided to do a whole lot of layoffs. Okay, um, this is not my experience. And then they, they brought consulting firms to do. They that realized work. that the people that they needed, who had the embedded knowledge in the firms, actually um, they fired them. So they needed to hire them back as consultants for like three times the cost. <laughs> and I, I actually I actually used to be a financial consultant. I did a I did I a, a capitalism a big. Uh, <laughs> Well, let me, let me, let me say, I was, uh, I was doing a big project for one of the big banks in South Africa, um, innovation project. And, um, I used to, um, analyze their, their, their systems. And, um, basically I would do it from a Marxist and analytical point of view. And I would go back to them and I'd say, well, this is essentially the problem with your organization. Um, for example, proletarianization is a Marxist theory. And it's basically when white collar workers become as, um, uh, Divided from their work as a, a person on a manufacturing line, they don't see the the uh, the product of their labor. They treat it as cogs in a machine. That's called de- de- pro- uh, proletarianization. So basically, when a white collar worker has all the job satisfaction and value of a cog in a machine of a cog in a production line, and I sold this to them, I changed the name, and they said that that's brilliant. That's absolutely the problem we have in our system. Um, so you know, you you call you call you give a dog a bad name. You you sell them Marxist theory by any other name, and there are a lot more economists since the 2008 crash. Um, you know, there's a lot of um, speculation about a certain bubble going on in in, in, yeah. in the financial sector, in, in, and and a lot of these people are turning to Marxist analysis just to say this is what's happening. I mean, you you want to talk about bureaucracies? If you go to the big banks in South Africa, hundreds, tens of thousands of people, there no greater bureaucracy uh, than in these I, large corporations. I deal know? with them every Doctors day. Would agree. I yeah. deal with them every day because I have to do stuff on behalf of clients and get stuff from banks, right? And they always say, and then he speaks to my team leader. So whenever they answer the phone, I said, just take me to your leader. 
No one gets a joke, but that's the joke. <laughs> Nevertheless, so you, you're a consultant, as every white person in this. No, you're not a consultant, Wit. I am. Well, well actually, when you're fully qualified and you've, you specialize, then you technically right, call so the consultant. Right, three, three consultants in this, in this room, right, yeah. Well, 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 two of us aren't necessary then. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Maybe we'll charge three times what mm. everyone else does. Yeah. So, nevertheless, Kenya, mm. interesting country. Uh, one of the earliest countries in Africa to get independence, 1961. Yep. And we were talking before the show. So, that, but yeah, no, whichever. Anyway, anyway, yeah. Uh, we were talking before the show that they received a, well, they have a new constitution since 2010. And there's interesting dynamics going on there, which we can contrast with in, in our country right here. So let, let, give a bit of context to so that. There's a, there's a, there's a, a theory in, in, in uh, uh, political theory about uh, d- democratic consolidation, and generally the, the idea of gem- uh, democratic consolidate- consolidation is got to do with the maturity of your democracy. Now, to, to, to maybe bastardize a bit, there's a guy called Huntington. He talks about various waves of democracy, and um, the various waves bring different levels of strength. So now, Kenya, uh, essentially historical context, they had um, uh, President Jomo Kenyatta was elected. Now, basically, he he. Um, had a had a monopoly on power because as the independence um, a representative of the independence movement in Kenya, um, there was a certain loyalty uh, from the electorate that was it was given to him and he was able to consolidate his power during that period. During that period, the constitutional um, makeup of Kenya was basically a top-down framework. They had the central government, they had the departments before central government, and then those central government departments would allocate to the provinces that they had at the time. Now, so that that was um, a manifestation of the way that he created a patriarchal system where everyone depended on their position in government, on the person above them. That was what was their security. Um, now, since uh, 2010, um, as, 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 as Kenya begins to develop, they, they introduced a new system where they've de- devolved power into 47 different counties, which are mm, roughly equivalent to American states, where you have a governor, you have a, a legislature, etc. Uh, and these people are not um, dependent on central government for their position. I mean, there's party structures. I'm not saying that it's a perfect system, whatever, but there are very, very interesting, very positive trends. So, uh, you know, for example, uh, people are afraid of their, of their electorate in Kenya. I was there when uh, the Kenyan senators, as they're called, were voting for a pay rise for themselves. They're already some of the highest paid senators in the world. They make, uh, um, Roughly equivalent to well, a hundred thousand less than an American senator, but if you give, you take into account the the economic disparities between the countries, it's a ridiculous amount. I was staying in the Hilton Hotel just down the road from the cent, uh, from the the Parliament there, and um, people had gotten onto the streets. Farmers had come around. They'd taken their pigs into the city centre. They'd written the names of their representatives on the pigs. They were holding signs saying, "If you don't want to do the job for what we pay you, we'll vote in someone who will." And they stopped the senators. I mean, you guys were talking recently about the the protests in Romania, you know. Um, and this is this is grassroots. I met I met a governor of a, of a specific county in Kenya. We were talking about revenue collection systems because there's still massive gaps in creating sustainable revenue. And um, I was introducing the technicalities of the system, etc. And he said, "Okay, look, look, I'm not I'm not that interested in in all of the technicalities. All I want to know is, will this work? Can I?" Receive taxes? Can I receive all the rates, etc., that I need to make my government work so that I can build roads, I can build schools, I can build hospitals so that I will get reelected for the next term? And that's because there's a certain responsiveness that government has that was from devolved power. And it's interesting because that, that was kind of how South Africa used to be, but I see us heading the opposite way where we're going to a patronage system where your position in government 
is dependent on the person who's directly above you. And obviously, we all know who's at the top of that pyramid. Now, it wasn't Zuma who did that. It was Tabo, Tabo Mbeki set that up where he centralized power in, in himself. The reason Mbeki was kept out because there was a backlash against him. People didn't like the fact that he was such a megalomaniac. And they saw Zuma as the answer for, for various reasons. He's, he's got a certain influence in party. I mean, one of those reasons might be he was the head of MK Intelligence. And they dig up a lot of dirt on people, but that's... Uh, perhaps uh, conspiratorial, neither here nor there. But even back then, he was seen as as someone who was not an intellectual, and in in a good sense, he was someone who he's been in the ANC for a long time. He was on Robben Island at the time. Even I was cautiously optimistic, even though I was I was much younger than I am now. But at the time, you sort of could understand a little bit why people would support him. So I I would say that um, the reason why they supported Jacob Zuma is because they. Um, I, I see the ANC as one of the, one of the smartest political groupings in the world because they've managed to monopolize. Still. Still. Politically, not economically, there's, 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 there's a lot of diversity in the party, but I think it's one like, of the it's things. It's like saying syphilis is the best venereal disease in the world. Because yeah, it spreads well. easily or something. <laughs> suppose we are talking about I'll, politicians. I'll, I'll have to try it sometime, yeah. I uh, wouldn't know. Jonathan, <laughs> any news? Huh? Sorry, <laughs> no, I interrupted you. My tertiary you. syphilis so. is under control, thank you. <laughs> so again, I mean, this goes back to, to how the ANC um, was managed to create a, um, I think I think this is very clever, the way that they managed to monopolize political debate between the left, the right, and the unions within one political party. Now, the reason why Mbeki was a threat to that was because he was a megalomaniac. He tried to centralize power um, away from that, that fundamental structure and all the different interests. The people whose interests were not being looked after, they saw Zuma as someone who would be a mediator, someone who would be able to still keep the party alive, keep debate within the party. But I don't think that they foresaw uh, necessarily what a uh, um, how, how much self-interest that he would also bring to that game. Um, and I, and I, and I think that that's what fundamentally a, a problem that we have in this country is that, um, there is no despo- responsiveness. We're getting there. I think we're getting back. And I think one of the power, powerful things of our constitution, again, a goldfish only grows to as big as its bowl. Our constitution has been stretched, you know, but the bowl's only proven to be that big, but the rest of it lies on the fact that we need a government that is responsive to its people. And, um, that's, that's something that, that, that is, that still needs to be worked out. But the reason why it hasn't been is because the ANC monopolized a lot of the activity within its own party. And if you look at groups like Fees Must Fall, it's not just that they monopolized power. They monopolized the knowledge of how to actually combat um, the vested status quo. The ANC was a remarkable resistance party. They shared ideas. They shared strategy. They read they uh, all, all the different uh, revolutionary theorists, and they, they practiced this to great effect. Now that the ANC is in power, there's a void. You look at Fees Must Fall, they've got no strategy, they've got no direction, they've got no no activities that could actually empower the people who are part of that group. Um, they just see, we want this and we need power to do this, rather than understanding what the steps are to get that power. And that's a void in leadership in South Africa that um, that uh, that needs to be addressed. Yeah, I mean, I completely agree with you. So, I mean, we need a, a responsive party to the people, but why are the people so, they, they I don't know, I find that every South African would, so is not happy to to actually try uh, put pressure on the state. So I mean, again, this goes to um, there's a certain legitimacy that the ANC has. That legitimacy comes from the fact that it's a liberation party. Oh, France Fanon talked about this. They still yeah. have it, but it's waning. But you know, a lot of that is tied up in rhetoric. A lot of that is tied up in in ideological controls. And I think it's an interesting anecdote. Um, from when I was in university and, uh, there was a group coming around, um, on the, uh, there's a, there's a group called Abatale Basim Jumdolo, which is the Shak movement. These people have been attacked viciously, physically. There's been, there's been murders, um, in KZN in, in some of the work that they do. And, and a lot of that, that is, is basically laid at the head of the, of the ANC there because they, they resent 
um, um, uh, uh, a working class uh, and poor um, uh, uh, attacks on their power, on their power base. But anyway, this gentleman from the unemployed people's movement on the platform of, of Abashali, he came up and uh, he stood up and he, and he said the, the classic refrain, Amandla! And everyone shouts back, Awetu! And he says again, Amandla! And everyone shouts back, Awetu! And the third time he goes, Amanga! And everyone shouts back, Awetu! And he said, okay, comrades, I have to stop you now. The first two times I said Amandla, which means the power, the power. And you shouted back at me, it is ours, it is ours. The third time I said Amanga, which means the lies, the lies. And you shouted back at me, they are ours, they are ours. And the ANC has um, a certain rhetorical um, bent um, in terms coming from its history, coming from the, 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 the very destructive history that we have in South Africa, they've managed to play that well. But there's only so far that rhetoric will get them, which is why we're seeing more resorting to force because rhetoric is not working anymore. We're seeing Zuma calling out the army, which I think is uh, a far more uh, uh, terrifying aspect than fist fights in parliament, you know. Um, and um, the ANC is getting more and more disturbed by the fact that it is, it is realizing it's losing legitimacy. It is realizing, um, and you see, you see things like the splits in the party that are happening now, because the contradictions in, in the basic system are are, are coming to light. So, um, yeah. Well, I mean, look, I, uh, just on that, on a side point, is uh, violence is violence. So. Uh, I don't particularly like it when our politicians start hitting each other or when there's violence. Because the, the thing is, is you remove uh, the EFF forcibly from parliament the one year. The next year, it's you remove them forcibly while hitting them. Uh, it's the, a precedent. The, the next time, uh, and the, then there's riot police all of a sudden who don't do anything, but there's riot police. Maybe the next year, riot police fire tear gas. The following year, you know, it's an escalation. And then before you know it, those 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 uh, soldiers who are standing around uh, aren't just standing around, but in 10 years' time, because you've slowly normalized violence, um, they're actually shooting people. Um, so I, I, I'm, I'm, I don't think that any of this escalation is, is, is good to see at all. Um, I would like I, – I don't mind them shouting and screaming at each other. I mean, I think, I think they're all idiots, but well, not all of them. But for the most part, there's a lot of nonsense that goes on. Even now, I, you know, we, we have the Sona debate happening we're recording this the week before you hear it, and it's happening at the moment. Uh, and so what? I mean, a lot of what they say, who cares? Like, it doesn't filter down to anything that happens in the country. Uh, it, it's, uh, and, and we've got this problem amongst, amongst our, our, our politicians. Uh, it's interesting the Kenyan example you give. Is that, is that um, quite similar to the sort of Swiss example? Because 47 different kind of mini-states sounds like a Canton type type of system. Is that is that well, kind it's, of it's what's a federal there? system? It's a federal system. There are parallels, but I also think it's it's also. I mean, I, I know that I, I I use Kenya as an example, but it's also it's also dangerous to make um, equivalencies between different countries. I mean, mm. a lot of people say that Switzerland's such a great country works, but it's it's a very uniform country. Mm. I mean, one of the reasons why Kenya has forty seven counties is because it's got forty two different ethnic groups. So, you know, and there's there's certain conflicts that happen with that. Um, that need to be managed and that need to be that, that need to be properly accounted for. Um, Switzerland is universal. They, 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 they've been around for hundreds of years in their current form, yeah. and you get a certain type of complacency, a certain type of where uh, maturity of their democracy, which is which but, is already. But we've got we've got similarities to Kenya in that we are very uh, heterogeneous in in our in different cultures, different languages, uh, different. Uh, Domains in terms of land, uh, what people view as territory in terms of their tribes and, and things like that. 
Um, and, and a lot of the angst that, that seems to, you know, we never really talk about this. Uh, and at the moment it's the, you know, it's the, 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 the essentially is what we have in South Africa at the mm. moment. You know, uh, we've just taken uh, apartheid based propaganda. We've turned it on its head slightly and it's, it's now the, the white privilege and everything that, that, that white monopoly capital does. Uh, the, the problem with that is, okay, fine. In 20 years time, white people probably will make up such a small percentage of this country. It'll, they will be, insignificant uh, and at that point at, at which point do we confront the issues that we have amongst um, our Zulu population with the Gaza population etc etc and again this, this is well there's, there's two points I mean one is obviously the, the the rhetorical power that the ANC has using this um, as opposed to take people away from the fact that um, now the trade unions in South Africa are endorsing someone who himself is a mine leader you know who is um, you know is a shareholder in Lonman etc with all the massacres happening there and they said you know he, he represents us regardless of the fact that he is a different economic class that his interests are not the interests of the voters they're not the interests of the working class who the ANC purports to still to, to, to still um, represent mm. so they have to take identity politics which again is it's, it's a smokescreen yeah. um, it's, and it's the same um, but you know to a lesser extent the, the ethnic divides in South Africa because South Africa Again, going to Steve Biko, there was always a, a certain solidarity that was created because of the apartheid system that was in place, because it 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 um, it, it delineated all blacks as blacks; exactly. they weren't uh, separate mm. in any way. And they created that that that, that fundamental racial divide, which um, is is again it's a class divide. I mean, and the ANC has lost sight of that because if you look at the SACP, the SACP said always said that um, the apartheid system is not a racial system. It's a system of labor control. It's a system of, um, of, of labor migration, you know, and, and, and controlling, and controlling, uh, the workforce, you know. Um, but the ANC is, doesn't, they've lost sight of that. The SACP, uh, to a certain extent is, is, is also because, you, you know, that's, it's, it's not. Because Bladen's and Zamani drives around in a BMW 760. Absolutely. And, yeah. And, um, and, and again, it goes to the patronage system that they've created, you know, in, in terms of the fact that the, the key thing that needs to be unlocked in South Africa is our education system. You know, we're not, we're, we're not going to be a feasible country if we carry on, uh, protecting dead industries like textiles. We're not competitive. You know, I'm, I'm all for workers' rights protecting the people who are there creating a great platform in order to reskill these people, put them into productive industries. Mm-hmm. But because, the government is using um, national institutions, and again, this goes to, to a certain Bolshevik mindset where you cannot differentiate between the party and the state. They start using state apparatus as a way of, um, of furthering their own political personal agenda, um, and we actually need to start using these systems because we've got great systems. I mean, uh, you know, there's there's the seaters and the and the, the further education and training colleges, which could actually do a hell of a lot to modernize our economy, put us into competitive industries. But instead, because government is is trying to keep a cap on the contradictions. We're protecting dead industries. Um, we're protecting the coal industry, the mining industry, which um, consecutively, year after year after year, pro- uh, provides less of our GDP, becomes a less relevant industry. But because so many of 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 of, of our employed demographic is is in those industries, government feels it needs to maintain stability rather than creating um, a certain innovative approach to, to how we how we modernize our, our economy. So mm. again, talking about Marxist China, I've just announced, I mean, they're, they're making their, their transition now to a services-based economy um, from, a, from a labor. And that causes a lot of disruption, but you have to have systems in place um, in order to handle that disruption. And, you know, I think that South Africa, um, 
another another shortcoming that we have is is is, is that we're so, we we still see ourselves as part of Europe, and this is you know cross cross racial. You know, there's a certain arrogance that we have when we approach the rest of Africa. But when I go into Africa, people say we want to work with Africa, with South Africa. You have we have skills. We've got amazing talent. You don't think some of that arrogance justified? I've done a fair amount of traveling in Africa. And I can tell you that there's nowhere like South Africa in terms of when you you know getting you get off a plane at Tambo International. Arrogance breeds complacency. That's the problem. Perhaps it does. Um, perhaps it does. You know, it's interesting you say that because I was having a conversation with a Zimbabwean uh, colleague uh, recently, and and they're very uh, arrogant about their education system. Still, they they uh, within the conversation they were lauding their A levels over <laughs> over over um, the group of us. Um, so they are they are quite complacent about that. But I, I'm, I'm just it's it's just interesting that you know I I think. We deserve to have a little bit of the exceptionalism attitude because South Africa is exceptional in many ways in to, in, when no, we compare we it not. to the rest of Africa. We, no, so I, I, so I, what? I fundamentally I mean, disagree. Okay. Um, First of all, we've, we've, we've got economic stagnation in South Africa. We've mm-hmm. also got market saturation. Mm-hmm. Our trading partners are still the same people they used to be, uh, the, your first world countries, etc. Places in Africa that are growing the most, I mean, you look at East Africa as a regional brock, they've got an average growth rate of 7%. Mm-hmm. Now, as, 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 as far developed as South Africa is, and, and I think that is a benefit, we should be using yeah. that, but, 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 we're not, but our, our niche, our economic niche, is not going to be servicing and competing with America, with Europe, with China. It's pan-Africanism. We need to start bringing the same skills. And I've seen this going to going to African countries, where they say we want to work with you. We want to, we want to have a certain, you know, uh, increased trade, increased skills uh, development. But ironically, given our, our government's history and given how much our government relied on Africa um, in terms of uh, during the struggle. Um, we have such a negative attitude uh, to, to Africa. There was a, there was a trade uh, negotiation going on uh, with the East African community, the EAC, which is like, you know, East Africa SADC. And um, the South African delegation didn't even turn up. You know, it's like uh, there was no, no desire to treat Africa like, a, like an equal partner. And the thing is, even though we are more developed and, and you know... The- I'm just asking if that... Um, it, for me, it's a perceptional thing. So I agree with you. Economically, we are very much behind the rest of Africa. We're not really moving forward uh, in any in any great way. But you, you, people, the reason why they might say, well, we feel like we're more at home with uh, in Europe or in the United States or even in the developed sort of Far East is because when I get off my aircraft, I can order an Uber and I can get on a highway. Now, I, I, those may be small sort of things, but I think they are important in no, the perception. I think you're wrong. The, the okay. problem is that Kenya can't afford to pay the bribe required for a trade deal. They just actually want to trade. No, so but, uh, obviously they're, they're there's not all, China, of these, all of these right? things. I'm, I'm just wondering. They're not Russia. I know it sounds very sort of petty and materialistic. Um, but, I, you know, it, it is that South Africa so, doesn't look like the average African country. But I, but I think that that's a negative perception, and I think that it's debilitating to to our future prospects. So, and and you see it, you see it manifest in different ways. So you say, okay, we're arrogant, we're great, we we've got some of the best skills, the best talent, the best technology, and you go into Africa with that attitude. So there was a, a survey conducted in I think it was Business Day mm-hmm. last year, talking about perceptions about South Africa, and they perceive South Africa to be the most arrogant. Um, um, country um, in the continent to, to, to deal with. Now, why do we need to alienate people like that? So there's an example of a big South African firm, no names, that went into Kenya. They bought a big uh, Kenyan firm, a technology firm, and uh, practically 
immediately the next day all the local Kenyan workers who are very skilled people. They've got an amazing education, sure. uh, a dedication to education, dedication uh, to, 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 to societal and economic upliftment across mm. the country. And these, uh, these guys came in. They were basically all their, all their, all their goods were in cardboard boxes. Um, they'd they been fired. Them. They'd been chucked out. They'd hired uh, cheap Indian labor to come in. Um, and then they started um, lawsuits against their main clients in Kenya. Um, and their main clients were like, okay, well, this is, this is not working. These guys left after a very un, 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 unsuccessful um, entry into Africa, lost lots of money. Um, and, and they gave Africa, South Africa a bad name uh, just, just, just from relation, which we don't need to have that. Mm. And honestly, it doesn't matter how advanced South Africa is. If we're stagnant, if we've got nowhere to plow our profits um, um, uh, productively into and yeah. our skills productively, it doesn't matter how good we are because yeah. we won't be that good I, for long. I'm not justifying the stupidity. I'm just sure. trying to understand no, why we're, it we're absolutely very developed. And I, and I, and I, but the thing is, I, I don't understand how arrogance can ever be a positive feature, especially when you treat people like they are less than, mm. not like, um, you know, not, 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 not helping people. Um, in our continent, other markets, um, to actually develop themselves, you know, um, through, through, through equitable trade, trade relationships. I mean, there's a certain argument that South Africa is essentially the U.S. of Africa. We go oh, and we yes. dictate. Mm. And uh, that, that's, that's not a sustainable way uh, to grow our economy, you know. It's not a sustainable way to look to our future. I mean, a good friend of mine made this remark about five years ago. It always stuck to me. He says, listen, we've got a billion people to the north of us who need two-minute noodles, shoes, copper wire, light bulbs, and we are not the ones giving them those things. Now, why is that? And it's true. There's a billion consumers yeah. to the north of us, and we are not providing them with anything. Yeah. Isn't, that, isn't that like our The Commissar regional alone is 680 million people, you know, and, yeah. and, and the, the, the combined growth rate in those countries is, 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 is just something we should be enviable of. And we're, hard, and we're yeah. hardly even touching any of that. Absolutely. It's weird, isn't it? Yeah, the Chinese, though. Oh, yeah, yeah, they're coming in. Yeah, absolutely. And into, into, into South Africa as well. For sure. what, what about the sort of bribery and corruption? Because, uh, you know, a lot of the Chinese I'm against it. Sure. <laughs> um, but, uh, uh, you know, it's easy to say, well, we should be going in. But uh, if you want to go in, let's take construction as an example. If you want to go in uh, to other countries and you want to develop relationships and you, as a construction company, for example, uh, you're probably going to find that the Chinese will come in uh, and make a better deal than you will, uh, and have more money to throw around than you. No, do. but you thinking too macro. You thinking like huge trade deals. I'm just talking about just general, just general trade. But also, I think I think there's a lot of misconceptions about 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 how China is is their the, the influence on Africa. Um, you know, so uh, for first of all. Um, you know the Chinese. Yes, they had a thing where the, the, there's a reputation. The Chinese can come in. They can do it cheaper. They can they can uh, do it faster. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of uh, complaints that they use Chinese labor to do it. They get it done overnight and then they leave. But and then there was a lot of talk about the infrastructure that they built isn't up to scratch. You know, mm. um, there's a lot of there was a lot of complaints that of the bribery and corruption of of illicit dealings happening with Chinese companies, etc. But the thing is, is that. Um, China has realized um, that th th this is not a sustainable way for them to do business in Africa. If you look at what happened in Zambia several years ago, the president of Zambia lost primarily on the platform that he was too close to the Chinese. They didn't like the fact that they felt that he was selling his country out to foreign influences. They voted in someone new. And that person, the moment they got in the office, one of the first meetings they had was, was, the, was the Chinese representative saying, look, things have got to change. And this is also a misconception about Africa. People see Africa as... 
um, subject, a, a subject to whatever deals are given to them, whatever trade, whatever aid is given to Africa. But actually, Africa is becoming more assertive. We've got more bargaining power on the world stage now. We've got more countries, uh, more regional blocks interested. The a- Asia is coming here, not just China, also Japan, Korea investing in Africa. The Americans realize that they've lost ground. Ironically, Obama coming from Kenya, it wasn't a big concern of his. Um, the Chinese, Democrats don't like Africa. Absolutely. You know, the Republicans do. But now they're realizing they lost ground. With losing ground, they're losing influence, they're losing trade. So they're coming back. There's a lot of funding coming in. Obviously, Africa is still resource-rich. I mean, one of the reasons why Kenya is booming so much is their massive oil fields that we found in the north of the country. Uh, South Sudan, when they get their shit together, will uh, will also be a factor. Um, Uganda, Tanzania, natural gas, um, helium, interestingly enough, massive signs of helium. And these are all necessary resources that, um, that that are essential for the world economy and Africa knows that we've got bargaining power. We can actually play on the world stage um, and China is a big factor in that because China has given us their power because they've created a multiplicity of different interests that we can then now say, well, you know, uh, the Chinese are giving us this. What are you going to give us this? Or the Americans are giving us this. What are you going to, you know, it's, it's, it's basic, basic like bargaining strategy. So, but what about Donald the, Trump would be proud. He would actually. Uh, good deals. We're getting good deals, people. But well, not, uh, yeah, not not yeah, as good deal as yeah, Donald Trump. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The best deals in the world. Yeah, no, for sure. I'll have you know, sure. sad. I, no, not sad. Uh, nevertheless, I but, didn't. I didn't. I didn't great, mean to, to, to spit in the Donald's face. Yeah. <laughs> but, but if I ever get the chance, I probably won't. You would he's, got, he's got security guards. Yeah. No. <laughs> but but I mean, Byron, we can talk you about. Shake his hand. And yeah. Go. Can, hello, hello, President Trump. You can, you can shake That's his the t- truth. You can shake his tiny little. I'd, I'd, I'd like hands. to. I'd like to be put to the test. I would. <laughs> but Byron, okay. Well, we've been here for quite a while. It's, it's very, very good. Um, but the problem with Africa generally is people pick shit leaders for their countries, and which happens all over the world. And I'm not going to say Africa's worse than others, etc. People pick shit leaders as their as as their presidents or their dictators for life or things like that. And that is one of the so basically after liberation. The state is captured by the leader, and the leader keeps it. Angola, you know, the richest woman in Angola is, is the president's daughter. She's brilliant, by the way. You know, she's got like sure. 10 PhDs, and she's solved whatever, Einstein's equations. You know, she's absolutely brilliant. That's why she's so rich. Mm. Not because she's the president's daughter, by any means. Well. So that's, what, that's what's holding Africa back. But you mostly, see, it's a question, it? it's a question of, of, of trends. You know, and I, I see a positive trend in Africa. I mean, look. look Things aren't perfect. We've, Africa's still got a hell of a long way to go. But I think instead of always focusing on, yes, uh, these systems are fucked up. Yes, these countries are fucked up. Let's look at what's, what's actually happening. We are seeing a, um, a, 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 a maturity in terms of the democratic powers uh, that people are actually taking into their own hands. And also in terms of, of a block. I mean, you've got uh, the president of, of the Gabon uh, recently, I believe. Uh, he, he, was, um, he had to leave government, even though he said, I want to stick into power. I want to, the, I want to the stay Gambia, here. Maybe. The Gambia is the one yeah, I mean, yeah. Right. I always get the G's confused. Although Senegal uh, did send in their military and no, they were sure. completely landlocked. But, but it's yeah. a, but it's an interesting it's an interesting development in uh in a certain direction. That's that that's not more of the same. It's not more complicity, it's not more uh elites looking after their own interests and after each other's interests. But you look at the other side of the continent, I mean uh 
as I was talking about just just the, demo, the 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 situation in Kenya, where there is legitimate fear that they are not going to keep stick to government in the in in the coming elections, which are coming this uh, this August. Uh, in Tanzania, they had a change of power in Tanzania, Mozambique. Um, elections are getting more more democratic and more transparent, and this is a trend going in the right direction. This is a trend as the as and, and again this this talks perhaps to economic determinism. My Marxist mind coming back in um, is is that the more that people get economically uplifted, the more involved and the more power power they start to exact in politics. You know, it's a bit of a digression, but if you look at um, there was a study I saw recently about uh, female empowerment in uh, the Middle East, and if you look at the co- the countries which are primarily dependent on oil, Saudi Arabia, yeah, um, females have no, no power. power. But if you look at if you look at countries in terms of uh, a political representation, where women are more active in the economy, where they're more active in agriculture, they're more active in manufacturing and small business, etc., they are more represented in government, and that's economic determinism. That's, that shows that because they have economic power, they are taking political power. And as Africa's middle class starts to grow, as the economy starts to grow, as education starts to improve, Africans are becoming more assertive over the type of leadership that they want. I think one of the big problems is, is trying to say, well, the right system in Africa has to look like this. No, has to look. I also agree Africans, with that. Uh, Africa, each country, again, I hate to use Africa, 50, there's 54 different countries in Africa. They need to find their own face of democracy in their own country, their own face of, 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 of economic uh, organization. And I think that that's happening because Africa is slowly developing. Do you think people fetishize too much about, about the political system? Like Rwanda... It's, it's a dictatorship, mm. right? I mean, Paul Kagame is a dictator, but he's done incredible absolutely. work. Absolutely, yeah. he's 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 look, he's he's got he's got he's got his dark side. There's a oh, lot of I mean, absolutely um, a lot of terrible things that are happening in, he's a in human, Burundi. But the benevolent dictator stuff mm. could be a good model for Africa in a way. And again, this this, this speaks to, to the varying forms of of legitimacy. And I think you know, again. Uh, Kigami was what Rwanda needed. They came out of a, a, a hideously, a hideous place yeah. um, in, in history, and uh, Kagame was the guy who, who they needed to to keep it in, intact. And he's done amazing things. I mean, R- Rwanda, also part of the, the East African community, is growing at remarkable rates. Tiny country. They're doing phenomenal things in terms of developing their ICT capacity, uh, getting international players in. I mean, the World Economic Forum. I, I, I hope would have highlighted some of the advances that they that they're making. The one that was held in uh, in Kigali. And, um, uh, yeah, uh, fit for purpose. Again, there is no one size fits all. Mm. There's no reason why Western style democracy needs to be enforced on every single country in exactly the same way with exactly the same institutions. I fully agree with you. Countries need to, need to work out. And, and it's a negotiation. It's a negotiation between elites as it stands, between the political elites, between the economic elites and between the citizens themselves who actually have to stand up because you can you can put whatever power you want in a constitution. You can put whatever power you want in a military. But unless the, you maintain legitimacy with the people you are governing, you are not going to maintain their power for long. And that's uh, that's something that, that that Kagame has been able to do. He's been able to develop um, the well-being of of Rwandans. He's been able to create a unified national identity. Um, and he's and through that he's created legitimacy. Not because oh you know he's he stood for three four terms or however long it is that he has. He, therefore he's illegitimate. No, yes. he's delivering. <clears throat> yeah. So final question from our side. Um, you have this this great uh, progressive idea of what Africa is going to become. Uh, it doesn't seem like South Africa is part of that idea. We're, I, we're, we're, we're regressing. We're alienating ourselves and we're regressing. And, and part of that regression is because of the stagnation of our, our political uh, dynamic. And the stagnation is happening because of the, the, the monopolization of political activity within the tripartite alliance. They, they've got the left, they've got the right, 
and then they've got the middle. And the problem is, is that we take two steps left, one step right, two steps left. You know, it's, it's much better. You know, even if I don't agree with the government, mm. I think it's still better to have an efficient government than uh, than an inefficient, unqualified, and, and unprepared one. Except an efficient Bolshevik government. A lot of people die when they're efficient. When they're, 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 they're again, again, priorities. You know, if, know, know. if your priorities I'm just, I'm are just I'm just are growing trading. seeds rather than murdering people, uh, you want efficiency. Yeah. You know? All right. Well, there's a good story to tell for Africa, just not for us. Isn't that – how exceptional is that, Wit? Yeah, well, we'll see. We'll see. Uh, we've, we can also turn it around if uh, all these African Absolutely. countries uh, that you've mentioned a lot Moosey of them – will save us. Have, uh, well, I doubt that. <clears throat> I highly doubt that. Moosey needs to grow up a little bit. Um, but uh, – and also he needs to stop water shedding in Johannesburg. Freaking hell. Moosey's not responsible for water shedding. That's Herman. Well, yes, but he answers him. No, yep. Never mind. Am I? Are you saying they look alike, Jonathan Witt? No, I'm because not that saying is, that, that is at all. extremely racist of you. Thank you. Thank you for that. I've, I've been called worse, but no, I'm not saying that. You can edit that out. Right. <laughs> we don't edit the show. That's it. You can, uh, you can find uh, Byron on Twitter at Byron underscore McFadden. Um, anything else you want to? Uh, no, it's, it's, uh, um, yeah, long time listener to your show. It's nice to harass you guys in person. Oh, cool. cheers. We have Marxist listeners. We didn't yeah. know that. Well, you know, at least, at least open minded ones. And they keep calling us right wing bigots and racists. I don't get it. We got the most diverse listenership in the, well, not in the country, but like on Twitter, right? The reaction to us has come from hardcore Afrikaans nationalists to like commies. Well, yeah, to recently we've had some real hate from that, that yeah. side of things. So, you're doing something right then, huh? Uh-huh. You're doing something right. Well, uh, you piss everyone off. Right. So, uh, obviously you can find us on Facebook at Renegade Report. Um, you can also find us on Twitter. Uh, yes, but on Facebook, join our Renegade Report group. Yeah. Where we have discussions about the shows and about the ideas on the shows. And we've got like a hundred people like in a day, which is pretty cool. We just started it. So join us. There's lots of discussion happening there and we would like to see you all on there so we can actually see what you look like. Yeah, provided you're not an anonymous troll and then, uh, then bad things might happen to you. Uh, as always, we ask you to please tell your friends about the show. We are trying to expand and it seems to be working. You, if you listen to us on iTunes, please give us a rating. It's uh, the easiest way for people to find us. Thanks so much for listening and we will catch you next time. Cheers. Central.com